and a very good evening to you. Welcome to the Catholic View. I'm Sheila Pirsch. Thank you so much for being here with me. Coming up in today's broadcast of the Catholic View, we take a look at e-commerce and youth golf festival in Soweto. Well, Mahadi Boutelez is on standby to bring you up to date with some of the stories that have made headlines in Africa and beyond. So do stay tuned. Listen to Radio Veritas, 576 AM, for a change. Bringing you your news headlines from Africa and beyond. God gives humble heart the grace to rise with dignity, says Pope Francis. Drought affects 50 million people in southern Africa and inequality grows among children in high-income countries. Good evening, I am Mahadi Butelezi. God always gives his grace and dignity to the hardened heart which chooses to open itself with meekness to God's spirit. That was Pope Francis's message during his Friday morning mass at the Casa Santa Marta. Devin Watkins reports. Pope Francis commented on the biblical passage of the day which recounts the conversion of St. Paul, saying zeal for holy things does not mean one's heart is open to God. Pope Francis gave the example of a man extreme in his fidelity to the principles of his faith, Paul of Tarsus, but whose heart was totally deaf to Christ, so much so that he even agreed to persecute Jesus' followers who lived in Damascus. All Paul's plans and zeal take a sudden turn on the road to Damascus, the Pope affirmed, so that his story becomes the story of a man who allows God to change his heart. Paul is wrapped in a powerful light, hears a voice calling him, falls down, and is momentarily blinded. Saul the strong, the confident, was on the ground, the Holy Father said. In that condition he understood his truth, that he was not the man whom God wanted him to be, because God has created all of us to stand on our feet, to hold our head high. The voice from heaven not only asked him, Why are you persecuting me? but also invited Paul to rise. Get up and you will be told. You have yet much to learn, the Pope said. And when he started to get up, he was not able because he recognized his blindness. In that moment, he lost his sight, and he let himself be led. His heart began to open itself, thus taking him by the hand. The men with him led him to Damascus, and for three days he stayed there, blind, and took neither food nor drink. This man had hit his low point, but he realized immediately that he must accept this humiliation. And the true path towards opening one's heart is humiliation. When the Lord sends us humiliations or allows them to visit us, it is exactly for this reason, that the heart be open, docile, that the heart convert itself to the Lord Jesus. Paul's heart is opened. In those days of loneliness and blindness, his interior vision is changed. Then God sends him Ananias, who lays his hands on Saul, and his eyes are opened. But there is an aspect to this dynamic which, Pope Francis said, must be taken into consideration, the action of the Holy Spirit. We must remember that the protagonist in these stories is neither the doctors of the law, nor Stephen, nor Philip, nor the eunuch, not even Saul. The real protagonist is the Holy Spirit. 
The protagonist of the church is the Holy Spirit who guides the people of God. And immediately scales fell from his eyes and he recovered his sight. He got up and was baptized. The hardness of Paul's heart becomes docility to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Father concluded his reflection saying, It is beautiful to see how the Lord is capable of changing hearts, turning a hardened, stubborn heart into one docile to the Holy Spirit. All of us have a hardened heart. All of us. Let us ask the Lord that he makes us see that hardness of heart leaves us on the ground. Let us ask him to give us the grace and, if necessary, the humiliations, not to remain on the ground, but to rise with the dignity with which God created us, that is, the grace of a heart open and docile to the Holy Spirit. I'm Devin Watkins. On April the 17th, the Church commemorates the 53rd World Day of Prayer for Vocations. Pope Francis's message for the day is entitled, The Church, Mother of Vocations. Blessed Paul VI instituted the day in 1964 and placed it on the Sunday in which the Gospel of the Good Shepherd is read at Mass. Malawi has declared a state of disaster over worsening food shortages caused by a severe drought as concerns grow over a hunger crisis spreading across much of southern Africa. In a statement issued on Tuesday, Malawian President Peter Mutarika said maize production has dropped by 12%. About 2.8 million Malawians, nearly 20% of the population, face food insecurity, making the country one of the worst hit in southern and eastern Africa, where the current drought affects 50 million people, according to the United Nations figures. Zimbabwe, Lesotho, Mozambique and Zambia are also suffering food supply problems, while South Africa has said that the recent drought was its worst in more than 100 years. In Zimbabwe, 2.8 million people, more than a quarter of the rural population, do not have enough to eat. Bishop Ranvier Kataka of Wamba Diocese in the Democratic Republic of Congo has officially opened the first ever Diocesan Synod. The theme of the Diocesan Synod is the Church of Wamba marching towards new evangelization. In his homily, Bishop Kataka reminded the delegates that they were participating in what was truly a milestone in the life of the diocese since this was the first ever synod the diocese was starting. The bishop urged delegates to work towards moving the diocese into a future where the work of evangelization would have new and added momentum. Thursday, the 14th of April, marked two years since the abduction of over 200 girls by Islamist militants group Boko Haram in the Nigerian town of Chibok. Earlier this week, Boko Haram released a video of 15 of the kidnapped schoolgirls whose identity have been confirmed by their parents. The Archbishop of Abuja, Cardinal John Onayekan, told Susie Hodges that the Nigerian government was to carry out negotiations sooner or later to secure the release of the girls. The government has not said a word on this occasion. The only thing that is being said all over Nigeria is the fact that it is two years now. So the second anniversary has become an opportunity and an occasion to think about these Chibok girls. 
And we are all very embarrassed, very ashamed that over 200 guests could have disappeared like this. The only thing they are saying is that there is improvement in the situation. Displaced people are coming back to their villages and they are in time to start planting for next year, which is good news. The Boko Haram terrorists themselves are practically confined to the inner recesses of the forest where they have taken refuge. But life is gradually coming back to normal. Do you think that the government could be prepared to negotiate to secure the release of these girls and, of course, all the other hundreds of people that have been held by the Boko Haram militants? Uh, negotiation sooner or later, there has to be. But negotiation doesn't necessarily mean money. Negotiation simply means that we begin to talk and arrive at some conclusions. Again, it will depend on the position that government takes in this matter. If they took my advice, I would say the government should get the situation such that those who are tired can come back and uh, reconcile to the nation. But we don't know exactly what the policy of government is on this issue. The only thing we know is that the government has been intensifying a military response to the terrorists. But I believe we need to go beyond that, especially at this stage where it seems that the insurgents and the terrorists are already tired. Spokesperson for the Bring Back Our Girls Advocacy Group, Rodimi Olawela, says they are confident that the girls are alive and will be found. Well, we've been confident from day one that these girls are alive and that they will be found. Uh, it's the 219 girls missing and it's been uh, two years of torture for their parents, of trauma for these parents. Uh, I can tell you that uh, so far about 18 of these parents have died uh, in, in shock and with hypertension and, and all sorts waiting for their daughters to return. Uh, we are very hopeful, we are the campaign, are very hopeful that given the right uh, set of um, support, the Nigerian government and its international partners can, can rescue uh, or stage the rescue or release of these girls as soon as possible. We continue to hope, we continue to put pressure on the government, and we continue to ask that other nations do same. Inequality among children in high-income countries is growing, according to the report by the UN Children's Fund. The Innocenti Report Card 13 represents evidence on the ways inequality is affecting children in areas such as education and life satisfaction. Jenny Kongilosi reports. The report looks at the inequality of income, education, health, and general satisfaction about life, comparing children in 41 countries. Young people in Denmark are most equal, while those in Israel experience most inequality. In 19 countries, more than 10% of children live in households with less than half the median income of all 41 countries covered by the data. While inequality in self-reported health symptoms increased in almost all countries between 2002 and 2014, inequality in physical activity and poor diet decreased in majority of countries. The director of UNICEF's Innocenti office, Sarah Cook, said the report card provides a clear reminder that the well-being of children in any country is not an inevitable outcome of individual circumstances or of the level of economic development, but is shaped by policy choices. The 41 countries surveyed are from the European Union and the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, OECD. And finally, the historic and public briefing to select the next UN Secretary General have ended after three days. A total of nine candidates so far have put themselves forward for the world's top diplomatic post for women and five men.
The candidates all put forward their formal vision statements and took questions from member states and civil society groups in unprecedentedly open briefings at the UN headquarters. Matthew Wells reports. President of the UN General Assembly, Mohens Likitoft, who led the unprecedented exercise in transparency, laying out some of the formal ground rules for candidates and questioners alike. The briefings were described in layman's terms as, in effect, a job interview in front of the whole world. Thursday was the last day of dialogues, bringing the final three candidates out of nine so far declared to one of the main debating chambers to explain why they were best suited to become the next Secretary-General of the United Nations. Following the pattern of Tuesday and Wednesday, three candidates were allowed two hours each to set out their agenda for leadership. First to appear was Vuk Jeremic. The former foreign minister of Serbia was on familiar ground behind the microphone at UN headquarters as he was president of the UN General Assembly's 67th session three years ago. He said he would rejuvenate the organisation from top to bottom and begin office on day one with 53 specific commitments. He added that he was happy to discuss and refine his platform in the weeks ahead. Excellencies, I ask for the honour of serving you again, guided by three overarching convictions. First that ensuring more robust multilateralism represents the strongest safety net against the perils we face in our times. Second, that a revitalized United Nations should be the centerpiece of global governance. And third, that the UN's existing resources must be used more effectively so that the organization can deliver the results demanded by its membership and in the national community at large. He called for an overhaul of UN stabilization missions in Africa, saying they needed to be more robust, and said the spate of sexual exploitation and abuse allegations levelled at peacekeepers on the continent was an awful stain that needed to be addressed aggressively and completely. Second came Helen Clark, currently the head of the United Nations Development Programme, who for nine years was Prime Minister of New Zealand. One of four women vying for the top job so far, she said her experience and lifelong commitment to social justice and the global values of the UN made her well suited to run it. I believe the UN needs a proven leader who's pragmatic and effective. I see the incoming Secretary General needing to update the administration. I think the UN can become more effective in delivering to member states. It must be transparent and frank about what it can and can't do. It must work closely with member states to see that the resources given to it are prioritised around where the biggest difference can be made. Ms Clark committed herself to furthering the ambitious sustainable development and climate change agendas of last year and vowed to advocate for greater youth involvement and participation for women. Reciting a Maori proverb, the main indigenous language of her island home, she said that leading and inspiring the UN in the future was all about people. It was important, she added, to be optimistic about the organisation's bright future, despite the huge challenges. Finally, it was the turn of Sujan Kerim from the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia. Another veteran of UN affairs and former president of the General Assembly, he said that his 30-year career as a diplomat, business executive, politician and university professor lay at the heart of his candidacy. The basic assumption, according to my experience, for success in any undertaking is to believe in it. I believe in the United Nations because it is a product of visionary statesmen and their collective wisdom. To serve the cause of global peace and security is not a routine exercise. It is about experience, expertise, devotion, passion and sacrifice. He praised the sacrifice of the high-profile and low-profile UN staff who have given their lives in service down the years and laid out the key parts of his agenda were he to become the new Secretary-General. Management reform, sustainable development and climate change were at the top of his list, he said. 
The holder of the UN's highest office will begin his or her new job at the start of 2017 for a five-year term. And these have been your news from Africa and beyond. Have yourselves a very good weekend. I am Mahadi Bitelezi. And my thanks goes there once again to Mahadi Butelezi for bringing us up to date with some of the stories that made headlines in Africa and beyond. This is The Catholic View, coming to you on Radio Veritas, 576 AM, otherwise on 870 DSTV Audio Coming up next, we'll be talking about e-commerce and youth golf festival. The Vatican has recognized officially the Indian Jesus Youth Movement, granting it juridical approval as International Private Association of the Faithful. Jesus Youth is the first movement in the history of the Catholic Church in India and the second in Asia to receive such a pontifical approval. The degree of approval will be awarded during a ceremony to be held in the Vatican on May 20, 2016. A Catholic lay movement that began in Kerala, India, in the early 80s has now spread to 35 countries around the world, with its presence in all five continents. The Soweto Festival of Golf is an ambitious mix of professional sport and youth development, which takes place annually at the Soweto Golf Club in Pimville. Now in its fourth year, the event culminates in the Youth Development Day, which includes a golf clinic for 100 youngsters and a mini-tournament for 20 young golfers under the age of 18 from the Johannesburg region. For 20-year-old Nkosi Konadila, the Soweto Golf Festival gave him and his friends an opportunity to learn more about the sport, as well as to keep away from substance abuse and other ill behaviors that youth in Soweto may come across. Tell me about your experience last year. What was it like for you? My experience from last year, I was playing with the good players and they're giving me that, that moral, that uh, golf is an opportunity to everyone. A few of my friends, uh, they came here to play and others, they came to support me. And the other thing, uh, here at Soweto, we have a problem of drugs. Uh, a lot of children are smoking drugs and I've been telling them that, guys, you must stop doing that. Because uh, life is too short. you got to do something so that you can end up being someone tomorrow. Now, following your experience at the Soweto Festival of Golf last year, what did you do after this festival? I mean, I understand that the festival is not just there for the few days or for the three days of the, of the festival, but it also helps youth in terms of employment, in terms of, of uh, introducing you to a sports, which is in this case golf, and maybe taking you further. What has the journey been like for you? Were you able to continue playing golf after the festival last year? 
golf is my life. Uh, without golf, I'm nothing. I'm in love with the sport, and my aim is to play professionally at the age of 23. So that's why I'm busy playing golf, and I'm working hard on my game. Uh, like uh, in a week, I practice like five hours. I spend five hours in the golf course practicing two and a half hours, and then I take a break for one hour, and then I come back another two and a half hours every day, man. And what sort of impact has that have in your life? Um, um, it did help me a lot because each and every day I'm improving them. And also my friend, we also practicing when he's back from school. We do a lot of practicing every day. Man. Now, golf in South Africa and throughout the world is seen as a predominantly a white game, you know, for white people. How do you feel about it being a young black boy from Soweto, being able to play golf? And like you said, your aim is to become a professional golfer eventually. How do you feel about that? Um, um, uh, I'll tell you something. I, I feel happy about that uh, uh, the PGA Professional Golf Association we're trying like to groom up the black guys to become the professionals uh, and fall in love with the game. Because if you can check around, it's a lot of whites playing golf and professionals. We also need black guys to become professionals and play the golf. Because golf is a gentleman's sport and it's a sportsmanship. You have to be like a gentleman. All right, Nkosi Konadila, wish you all of the best for this year. Enjoy the festival. Any words that you'd like to tell to the rest of the youth in SA? Yes, ma'am. Uh, I'd love to say to the youth, uh, just follow your heart and do what you love. At the end of the day, you'll become someone. Thank you. I believe I can fly. I believe I can touch the sky I think about it every night and day Spread my wings and fly away Online commerce is a relatively young industry and yet it is already worth more than $16 trillion globally. It could also be a major boost for least developed countries if handled correctly. That's according to UN experts. Ahead of a week-long e-commerce meeting at the UN in Geneva, UNCTAD's Torbjorn Fredriksson spoke to Daniel Johnson about the major challenges facing countries who may have to revolutionize the way they do business if they are to reap the benefits. In the case of business-to-business e-commerce, it's worth about $15 trillion. And business-to-consumer e-commerce is worth about $1.2 trillion. And what's the major challenge for developing countries and the least developed countries? There's often the sense that there's the willingness to do it, the manpower, but not the tools. You know, we're seeing that the opportunities for even low-income countries and least developed countries to engage in e-commerce have increased tremendously over the past few years for various reasons. We have seen the rapid spread of mobile telephony and mobile applications and better access to Internet through these mobile networks. We have seen the evolution of new payment solutions, new e-commerce platforms that are really geared towards the needs of the developing countries. 
However, we can also see that the divide in e-commerce use is tremendous. And if you just want to think about the case of the UK, you have maybe 70% of people using e-commerce to buy and sell things. Whereas in rather advanced developing countries like Mexico and South Africa, less than 5% are currently buying things online. And of course, if you go to the least developed countries, that figure is even lower. Hence the concern that it's maybe not the right time to be diving into e-commerce. I think it's the contrary. You need to dive into this now because we know that e-commerce is going to grow and important because it's changing the way that businesses operate among each other, with consumers and with the governments. So if we want to give developing countries and the least developed countries a fair chance to participate in the transformation that we are witnessing now as a result of the digital economy, we need to give them support. What does it mean actually on the ground? How do you help a developing country revolutionize the way it does business in an e-commerce setting? We have identified five key areas that you need to address if you want to create a good readiness to engage in e-commerce and to reap benefits from e-commerce in, in the developing country setting. You need to have the adequate infrastructure, especially ICT infrastructure and affordable infrastructure. You need to have payment systems in place. And to some extent, you see the mobile money revolution now overcoming this barrier in some countries, but it's far from sufficient today in developing countries, except with, uh, with a few uh, exceptions. The third area is legal and regulatory frameworks to protect buyers online, consumers, to uh, fight cybercrime and to protect data online. A fourth area relates to uh, trade facilitation and transport systems. You know, when you go from big container shipments to many, many large-scale shipments of small parcels of individual consumers buying and selling things, it changes the dynamics of the transport sector. Do you and mean it's a major headache? It can be a major headache because the customs authorities are not necessarily geared up for this. And they need to learn how best to adapt. And here the international community can make a big help. We also need to help the small and medium-sized enterprises to understand what e-commerce is about and how they can best make use of the available tools that exist now. And that's what you're going to be discussing at the United Nations in Geneva with your e-commerce trade and development conference from the 18th to the 22nd of April. Yeah, it's going to be a, a really good opportunity to meet experts that deal with e-commerce and development from different angles. On the first day, we will, among other things, see the release of new data on how trust online is evolving around the world. We will also hear from the leading IT associations what they think the G7 countries should focus on in the ICT area at the next meeting in May. Another thing is we're talking about cybercrime and cybersecurity tools, and we will hear from the World Bank and other leading agencies on what can be done. Tuesday, Wednesday, we're going to have a two-day expert meeting on data protection and privacy and based on the implications for trade and development. This is being debated basically in all countries right now, how to deal with the protection of personal data and what happens if you are using cloud computing uh, services where you may be situated in one country using a cloud provider in a second country and they are keeping their data in a third country. What does that mean for jurisdictions? Which laws apply? And we're going to have a great setup of speakers here from the US Federal Trade Commission, the European Commission, the Council of Europe and the corporate players like Facebook and uh, IT business associations. Not to forget also we will have the Consumers International Secretary General because the consumers are a key player in the context of data protection. <music>
This has been your Friday's edition of the Catholic View. Should you wish to get in touch with me, feel free to send me an email, shayla at radioveritas.co.za. Catholic View is a program produced and presented by Shayla Pirsch. Thank you once again for listening to the broadcast. God bless you and ciao, ciao. I'm Shayla Pirsch. Thank <laughs> you.